welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry in Northern Ireland. Hello, Sebastian. Hello, everybody. Again, yeah. trying to trying to be conscious that we're trying to do this slightly different. We haven't, we haven't different. got any feedback yet to, to tell us how no. you do this differently. But, um, Which means everyone loves it. So okay. I guess that that's no that's no that news is good news. That's right. Okay. Excellent. So we had a a, a really uh, interesting conversation today with with two people who have collaborated over the course of many years over the subject of non suicidal self injury, particularly with young people, adolescents, and young adults. Uh, Victoria Cress and Rachel O'Neill were were kind enough enough to join us. Glenn. What do you think? What, what what stood out to you? First of all, just acknowledge even the idea of a thing of, of understanding this as a non-suicidal self-injury to give the concept that me cutting myself or me burning myself in itself isn't necessarily my search for to take my own life and to have that to have that context. But very importantly, and listen to to both Victoria and Rachel. What what struck me was just their commitment to be evidence-based in their response to their clients' presentations. They've worked really hard to understand why people do what they do, and very importantly then, what is it that will be most helpful in those circumstances, and then to live that and to be that in their company, and particularly that idea of exploring why people self-injure with a genuine curiosity to assist them as practitioners understand, and only after understanding do they begin to ask the question about what, if anything, would assist the individual consider doing it differently, which is very powerful. Let's let's just sit here and try and understand why you're doing this without trying to get you to stop doing it or do it differently. And then that desire to create a safe environment. You know, you, you can imagine someone presenting with, with self-harming or self-injury presentation and just that desire to offer a safe environment in which the individual can be themselves just as they are right now, someone who is cutting, someone who's burning, someone is whatever, to create that safety despite the fact that more often than not, outside of that environment, they're experiencing judgments from other people in relation to their behaviours. So very, very powerful environmental presentation or environmental considerations to make this, when you come to talk to me, it will be safe to, for you to be as you are right now. Yes, right, right. Kind of paradoxically, the, the, with safety being such a concern, yeah. the patient's curious approach is one that would foster uh, a safe environment for them. You know, for me, one of the things that, that they brought up early on was they, they addressed a common misconception or a common conclusion that people often jump to about the reasons why people engage in non-suicidal self-injury, and that is that this behavior is quote-unquote attention-seeking. As someone myself who works a lot with young people who engage in this behavior, uh, that is one of the most consistent things that I hear young people say, is that when, when a peer or a parent or a professional of any kind says that or, or concludes or, or accuses them of of this being an attention-seeking behavior, that is a quick effort to close people off, to make it become more of a secretive behavior, to increase 
risk rather than increase safety. And so um, Rachel and Victoria talked about reframing the idea of attention seeking as a way for someone to seek connection, which Mm -hmm. is perhaps something that's a bit less judged and something that's just so natural and, and so needed by all of us, no matter what. So that was that was really stood out to me. And the other was the idea of harm reduction in the context of working with people who engage in non-suicidal self-injury. Uh, we've had uh, an episode recently on the subject of harm reduction. We've talked about harm reduction in other contexts as well. And uh, so it, it's, it's, it was just an, an interesting way of thinking about a behavior, again, which which understandably causes a great deal of concern and, and urgency on the part of practitioners to think of applying the notion of harm reduction in this context. I thought was was, uh, was really interesting as well. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Victoria and Rachel. Welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate you all joining us. We could start as we often do. Just tell us a little bit about yourselves and uh, how you got into motivational interviewing. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, Rain, I know Rachel and I are really excited to be here with you today to talk about a topic that we really care about. I got into motivational interviewing early in my career. I, I actually started in the mid-90s as a counselor, and I found myself working with children and adolescents who had severe trauma I worked in a residential treatment facility and an intensive crisis unit. And um, I said I would never work with children and somehow found myself working with children and absolutely loved it. And then went on to write a textbook about even working with children. But um, the kiddos taught me so much about counseling and how to be an effective counselor. And I very quickly realized that a lot of what I had learned in school was not going to be effective in working with traumatized children. The kids with whom I worked had endured really severe multiple traumas uh, throughout their entire lives. And they had a lot of issues with uh, trust and security and safety in relationships. And almost all of them self-injured, which really makes sense when you think about their trauma history. Uh, Many of them had been sex trafficked. Um, often at very young ages. And I learned very quickly that the relationship with them was so essential and that the more control and agency they felt like they had over counseling and the counseling process, the more helpful it was to them. So at this point, I, I really didn't know much about MI. To be honest, I don't think I learned anything about it in school. But as I started to look at the literature and kind of reach out, I started to learn more about Emma and thought this is a really, really helpful approach to use. And truthfully, it was the approach that I kind of organically started using anyway, because intuitively it felt right. But then I learned more and I was able to put words to it and kind of outline it as a, as a, in a more intellectual kind of way in, in my head. Um, I really, I really learned a lot about self-injury during that time because again, it was the mid nineties and no one was talking about self-injury. The only, the only time I heard about self-injury was uh, in the context of the DSM and borderline personality disorder, where they talked about uh, quote unquote self-mutilation in the DSM. And I had no idea how to approach these kids and and how to help them. And um, no one, even my supervisors, really were struggling with trying to figure out how to be effective. And so uh, they taught me so much about self-injury and um, 
you know, a, a lot of what really struck me was that so many people who were working with people who self-injured at that time, and, and sadly, even during this time, get into a dynamic with them where it's about kind of controlling them. Like, I want you to stop doing this because I feel uncomfortable with this. And I think those attempts to try to control anyone are counterproductive. I don't care who you are, right? Nobody wants to be controlled or told what their counseling goals should be. So, um, yeah, I just I just really kind of intuitively came to using MI with this population and then um, really vowed to try to advocate for this population and try to support them. And so as I became a professor, I wrote about self-injury and different ethics issues associated with self-injury and just different practice issues associated with it. Yeah, so it sounds like that in your work with children, you became aware that their experiences of their loss of control or agency in certain circumstances resulted in traumatizing effect and that it was almost like you had to do the opposite, which was to give them control and agency to dilute that experience. And, and there was no, no, no one telling you how to do that, but you were searching, to, searching a way of offering these young people that experience when they were with you. And then you met Motivational Interviewing and it seemed to be it was promoting and supporting that. And that's what invited you in to learn more about it. And, and certainly throughout the conversation today, that's, that's one of the things we're going to be most interested in is how using motivational viewing in non-suicidal self-injury or can be useful. And I'm, and I'm just wondering, Rachel, what about yourself? How did you come to AMI? Yeah, a relatively similar pathway, as Victoria mentioned. You know, I think uh, like many folks who are starting out in their career as a mental health professional, my first experiences with providing care were in um, really high-risk situations. So working in a psychiatric hospital, similar to Victoria, working with children and adolescents, um, seeing folks that were engaging in non-suicidal self-injury, who had, um, you know, those, as uh, Vicky, uh, Victoria mentioned, those complex trauma-type behaviors, and who for, you know, a lack of a better term, were free flyers um, within the, the psychiatric spaces. I think I, um, you know, went into that role perhaps a bit better prepared in the sense of I had the benefit of having Victoria as my professor um, moving into that role. So I knew a great deal about self-injury uh, because that was something that was obviously, uh, you know, something that she had taught. She's an expert in it. So I went into that role better understanding um, some of those counter-transferences that she spoke, uh, pieces that she spoke of, where some of the attempts to be helpful to individuals oftentimes resulted in trying to take away their autonomy or trying to limit their ability to make decisions and choices. Uh, additionally, um, you know, as I started to try to figure out how I was going to be helpful to folks, I also was learning a bit about motivational interviewing. So had the opportunity to receive some training um, outside of my graduate school experience um, and had the opportunity to learn more about it. In that space, it very much was sort of the traditional uh, model of using it for addictions treatment. Um, so the way that I encountered motivational interviewing was through my work uh, with folks who were experiencing uh, substance and process-related addiction. But as I came to learn more about MI, it really seemed to be something that fit with a host of different behaviors. So um, diving into the research literature and seeing how it was being used at that time to treat eating disorders, which was a relatively new approach to using MI, um, but thinking about how we could adapt those types of things with non-suicidal self-injury um, and thinking about some of that, 
the features of self-injury that oftentimes do look a bit like process addictions, right? So that idea of somebody finding something that works for them and being really reluctant to give that up and avoiding those efforts of trying to come in and take something away from somebody before you've given them something else. So I would say, you know, for me, I really found MI and thought, wow, this can work for so many other things. There's so many ways that this can be such a great opportunity to work with people and to work with people who aren't ready to make change yet. I think that's you know, such the beautiful part of MI is that many times as a mental health professional, we're working with people who are in those initial stages of change. They're, you know, maybe they're coming to therapy because somebody else told them that they should be there. Um, in the case of working with uh, self-injury, Oftentimes, especially if you're working with youth, it's because somebody in their life has said like, oh, you need help and you have to fix this. And they don't really want to, or maybe they're, you know, on the fence, they're ambivalent about wanting to and not wanting to. And so, you know, I think MI just offers such a great opportunity to help folks at that place of ambivalence and to help motivate them. And the utility outside of addictions, you know, this is something in the, you know, the past few years has really been demonstrated over and over again but it really has application in helping people when they're ready to get them to be ready to make that change. And when they're ready to make that change, to continue to help them through that process. Well, what, one thing that I just learned is the two of you met as a teacher and students, it sounds like. So that's really cool to hear and kind of adds to the, uh, to the, I guess, um, experience here as we're having this conversation today. Uh, I think you know, we will certainly get into how, what MI brings to the table in being helpful in situations where young people are often feeling, might often feel coerced or, you know, with adults trying to control their behavior when it comes to self-injury. So we'll get to that. I, I think it, it'd be really great to hear from both of you sort of talk about non-suicidal self-injury as a behavior or as a process or however you want to frame it, just so people that may be unfamiliar or just sort of loosely familiar with it you know, we can get a, a sense of, of what you all are, are working with here. Yeah, Sebastian, I'm so, I'm so glad that you started us off with that because there's a lot of misunderstanding about non-suicidal self-injury and, and what that is. I think there's a lot of confusion about it, which sometimes contributes to poor practices being used with this population and um, the misunderstandings contribute to it being kind of a misunderstood behavior. So I, I do think it's really important that we define exactly what it is that we're talking about. People have defined self-injury in a lot of different ways. Uh, the way that I think about it is as a deliberate self-inflicted destruction of body tissue without suicidal intent and for purposes not socially sanctioned. So if you break that definition down, it's it's some act of, of tissue damage that's done intentionally, but there is no intention to die. So there is no deliberate suicide attempts associated with the behavior and it's not socially sanctioned, meaning there are, you know, people engage in different uh, acts of tissue damage, right? Like different piercings, for example, and things. And if that's socially sanctioned or it's part of subculture, then that would not be considered a type of self-injury. But globally, I see self-injury as an attempt to regulate your emotions. So you're having strong emotions and you're struggling and you use the self-injury as a way to, to try to feel better, to try to cope with that. 
And again, I think the the big thing to consider is it is discreet and different from self-injury or excuse me, from suicide. You know, I think a lot of providers get really uh, triggered or anxious when they work with people who self-injure because it's reminiscent for them of a suicide attempt. And these are different behaviors. That said, it's complicated. You know, while a suicide and self-injury are separate, there has been some more recent research that actually suggests that, that oftentimes people when they self-injure are actually having thoughts of death. Like they're not in a, in a, in a good headspace and they are having thoughts of death or maybe ending things. Um, and self-injury can be a precursor to suicide attempts. And in fact, there is um, some type of correlation there. The strength of it is debatable, but there is a correlation there, right? So, you know, what I always say is it's important when you work with people who self-injure that you, you consider suicide and that you do uh, ongoing suicide assessments, but you understand the behavior and the meaning of the behavior for that particular client because it's very individual. You know, people who self-injure have a host of reasons they self-injure and those reasons can evolve and shift and change even over time for that person or they may have multiple reasons, right, that they engage in that behavior. So I just think it's really important to understand and work with the person to help them understand what what function is that behavior serving for them? What are the um, experiences that contribute to it? What are the feelings and the emotions behind it? And how does the self-injury change those feelings and emotions and thought processes? And just really unpacking that individually with clients is so important. And we, we can't make any assumptions, right, about, about why people do this or, or engage in this particular behavior. Yeah, so a very complex dynamic, a very complex set of circumstances, and and what was interesting as you as you were finishing there, you were you were encouraging us to understand that one of the efforts of the practitioner will be try and unpack this with the person themselves, get the other person to tell you what was going on, so that you can understand it, so that you can then respond to it, and and how significantly most people listening to this will recognise that someone presenting with anything that looks like suicide can tweak and spark that desire to uh, react, the writing reflex, the, the desire to step in and do something about it quite, quite quite quickly. And certainly there are opportunities or there are responsibilities for practitioners where if you are presenting with suicidal ideation, then it is appropriate on occasions for me to step across that boundary and remove your rights to protect you why we secure your well-being. But what you're saying is you have to be very clear where that boundary is because it's so easy just to step across and the person wasn't really there. Well, even when they were thinking about taking their own life, it was only a thought. It wasn't a plan. It wasn't It wasn't something that they were intending to do. And I guess then for the people listening to this, how do you have that conversation when you're beginning to try and understand what was going on for the person. How do you have those conversations with people who are presenting with self-injury and you're trying to work out what's going on here? Yeah, I can jump in on that one. Um, I think one of the things, and Victoria spoke to this, that's really helpful is to understand that each situation is unique. And so approaching it from a stance of curiosity can be very helpful instead of going into the relationship 
with the client saying, oh, I know why you're self-injuring. You're doing it because you want attention. And that is such a common misconception with self-injury is that a person is engaging in the behavior because they want attention. In fact, we know that for the most part, the reverse is true. Many folks who engage in self-injury are reluctant to share that they're engaging with that, in that behavior with other people. And they oftentimes may feel associated shame or guilt because they're engaging in the behavior. So opening it up as a place where the individual can talk with you about it and they can be honest about what it's doing for them, what function it's serving. Um, I find that not only is this important in terms of building rapport, in terms of developing a treatment plan, and in terms of also sort of uh, thinking about that relationship between self-injury and suicide, but it also helps us understand really the function of the behavior. So as an example, if a client tells me that they're self-injuring because it's helping them take away feelings of anger, my treatment plan is probably going to look very different than if a client tells me that they self-injure because they're feeling empty or dead inside because it's serving different functions for them. So really drilling into that and, and allowing the client space to talk about it. For many of our clients, they may have not been comfortable sharing this with other people. And so it may be the first time that they feel really heard and validated and like they have a safe space to be able to talk about something that's so highly personal um, and individualized for them as well. So I think that's step one. And then I think as a practitioner approaching it like you would in any situation where you're assessing for suicidal risk, I, for myself, don't think that the presence of self-injury in and of itself tells me anything more about risk of suicide. And I still, you know, need to thoroughly assess that regardless of if I know my client is self-injuring or not, I still need to thoroughly assess risk for suicide and make ongoing risk assessment part of the therapeutic relationship as well. Um, and there's really great models of, you know, suicide assessment and intervention now that allow that to be something that's possible, that it's just part of that process of therapy, that we're continuing to talk about risk for suicide, continuing to check in on it and making sure that it's part of our treatment planning as we move forward. Yeah, a couple of really important points, Sarah. One is um, when, some, when a client presents in any setting with evidence of or reports of non-suicidal self-injury, the, a practitioner might understandably and in a very caring and well-intentioned way get really concerned about the risk for suicide and rush into a risk assessment around suicide and perhaps will miss a very important opportunity to remain engaged with that client, but also to really unpack the, the function of it, try to understand, you know, what is behind this person's behavior. And, and not necessarily unpacking their history and their traumas and all that, but it, it sounds like this, this um, you know, sort of the functional assessment part of it is, is to understand, is this trying to cope with anger? Is it trying to help them feel something, you know, and kind of counter that empty inside experience that many have. But, um, but to, to try, if at all possible, to begin from the standpoint of curiosity and to try to understand uh, which, you know, also this idea of framing it as attention seeking that perhaps parents of young people will often jump to or certainly practitioners will jump to. In a way, that's their effort to try to understand the function, too. So maybe they're doing a bit of the same process. They're just jumping to a conclusion without the curiosity behind it. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's just a, a, it would just be a really useful lesson for everyone to just take a breath, uh, settle in and be curious about 
what this person is experiencing that's leading them to harm themselves. Yeah, Sebastian, thanks for that really thoughtful um, summary. I, I completely agree with everything that you said. And there's a couple points that you brought up that I, I really want to highlight. First, this issue of, uh, quote, attention-seeking, unquote. Um, you know, people, we, when we work with families or when we work with youth, or even adults in different hospital and residential settings, that's something that we hear the people around them say so often, like this person is attention seeking. And I, I always bristle a bit when I hear that. And I really discourage people when I do trainings from, from phrasing, framing self-injury in that kind of a way. Um, I think of self-injury as someone's best attempt in that moment to try to feel better and to cope. And I talk about how all people have a need for attention, support, connection. I don't think that there's anything human beings need more than connection. And so when people self-injure, certainly for some people, connection with others may be part of the function or that may become part of the function of the behavior over time. But I don't think it's it's a, a helpful to conceptualize it as this like strategic, deliberate, um, attention-seeking kind of behavior. I choose to think about it as an attempt and a bid for connection with people around them. And I think that completely reframes how you how you think about the behavior. And I, I just think it's it's so much more accurate. I'm um, going back also to something that you both mentioned earlier. You know, when we when we don't understand people's self-injury for what it is, a coping mechanism in that moment, uh, if we think about it as, say, like attention seeking or, uh, or if we think about it as a suicide attempt when it isn't, we really run the risk of rupturing the relationship. And I know Rachel and I have worked with so many people who talk to us and say, you know, I, I, I saw these past counselors, therapists, and, you know, they really overreacted to the behavior. They took me, you know, they had me taken to the emergency room or they focused on the behavior as a, as an, as a suicidal when that wasn't the intention. Um, or they tried to control the behavior by forcing me to do contracts telling me that I can't do it. And um, all of these things are very unhelpful, but sadly, I, I think they're still really common practices. So for our listeners, I think one of the best bits of advice I would give is just like you said, be curious about this behavior. What function does it serve? Really try to understand the client's understanding of it because they, there's a good chance in the past they've had a lot of um, misunderstandings about behavior and what it's about for them. Yeah, so much of what you're saying is about the, the judgment that people are experiencing or the judgment of the idea of even the idea of self-injury or self-harm. It's how it's presented is is almost saying you're doing something wrong. There's something bad about what you're doing. There's something that you, sh- you shouldn't be doing this because of some moral position rather than I'm worried by what you're doing, but I want to understand why you're doing it. Or attention seeking, there's something wrong with you if you need attention. And whereas you're saying that's that's a human need, that's a basic human need. We're social creatures, we live and work in groups, we need connection. And if if this was an attention seeking uh, behavior, this person needs our attention. But what you're exploring is how does how do people give that to them? And that, and that was the thing that came to me, which was it's almost like recognizing that this is the white heat of the emotional circumstances of someone who is self injuring. 
and we as practitioners are stepping into that white heat. And what I'm curious about is how can those listening to you learn from your experiences about, as Seb says, how, how can you take a beat? How can you take a breath? How can you be with someone in that very, very obviously painful place for the other person without reacting, but staying long enough to stay curious? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I was reflecting on um, when Victoria and I wrote this article and when we presented on it when it was first released. And uh, some of the questions and conversation we would get from folks who had read the article or who had come to our presentations, oftentimes there's fear as a clinician, right? That somebody has come into your office and they have disclosed this very personal thing and you see physical evidence of their pain. And I think that's such a distinguishing factor for self injury. When we work with people, who don't self-injure, who have depression or anxiety or trauma, we, we may know they're an emotional, but there's something different about seeing somebody come into your office who may show their scars or their, their wounds on their body. And, and that's activating for us is on a very human level as therapists. Even the, we have the best training, we have the best supervision. It doesn't mean we won't have a reaction to seeing somebody disclosing this and seeing, you know, witness to their trauma, to their pain. And so I think what's so important is being mindful of that as a therapist. So when you're with somebody, noticing what's happening to you in that moment, we all are prone to counter-transference. We're not robots doing therapy, but recognizing that your attempts to want to be helpful cannot be guided by your counter-transference. They can't be guided by a misplaced need to want to stop somebody from doing something before we've given them the resources or we've allowed them to have autonomy to make that decision. And I think that's so important as well that um, it's not uncommon, especially for youth, but folks in general who are experiencing self-injury to have people in their lives who are telling them that they have to stop it, who are giving them ultimatums. I've worked with people who are in relationships where their partner says, you have to stop cutting yourself or we can't be together anymore. Or a family member who says, like, you can't live under my roof if you keep doing this. That's such a, a disempowering approach to something that's so complex. And the reality is if it was so easy for people to stop harming themselves, none of us would have jobs, right? Just like if it was so easy to stop using substances, people wouldn't have jobs. It's complex and it's, there, there's so many reasons why people do it. And, you know, we even know from a self-injury standpoint that oftentimes there's a physiological reaction that happens where, you know, neural pathways get activated and people can't just stop doing it. Um, it takes on these addictive-like qualities. So I think, you know, to go back to the original question, the idea of just allowing therapists the opportunity to take a step back, notice what they're feeling, be grounded in your therapeutic approach. And again, I think this is where motivational interviewing can be so helpful, having a roadmap for yourself. But yes, the ultimate goal for you as the therapist may be to get that client to the action stage where they're ready to consider alternatives to self-injury but you may not be there on that first session or that second session. You may be much more in that pre-contemplative stage or the contemplative stage where you're helping the individual to even recognize that this is a problem. And, you know, maybe they've walked into your office and they really want to address the relationship with their partner. They don't really want to talk about the self-injury yet and being okay with being in that space of helping them in these other ways before focusing exclusively on the self-injury um, as something that is a treatment target. Yeah, and perhaps a lot of directions to go right now in, in our conversation. And I feel like we could maybe be uh, best serve our our goals here for our conversation and, and the listeners to, to start to dive in a little bit more specifically into motivational interviewing and how aspects of MI can be helpful in these different 
different steps, you know? So Rachel, you mentioned uh, sort of a step one of that curious exploration, what's going on with somebody, trying to understand the function of the behavior, and then as a step two, maybe getting into suicidal risk. So it'd be great to hear one or both of you talk about how MI fits with those two steps. And then you you were referencing uh, the stages of change model, which we have a previous episode about if people want to listen to that. Um, so we don't need to get, get into a whole new set of um, topics around the, the, the stages of change model. But maybe if you, if as we go, we can start exploring how MI fits, even in really specific ways, specific questions that might be helpful in unpacking some of the different steps or, or getting towards a place where maybe we're planning for, um, for some behavior change. So that was a lot there, but I guess the general invitation here is to, if we can start highlighting some specific MI principles or skills. Yeah. I, you know, I think MI is such a great fit with self-injury for so many reasons. You know, when you think about kind of some of the basic principles, right? Like there's this focus on uh, counselor expression of empathy, right? Of, of, of understanding, of, of curiosity, of really relating and connecting with the struggles that a client's facing and having empathy about those struggles and empathy about the client's choice to engage in these behaviors. Uh, you know, that, that empathy, that working alliance, right. That's so essential to the counseling relationship. And I think it's, it's particularly important with people who self injure, who have often um, typically been met with um, judgment around the behavior and people having their own personal reactions to the behavior and trying to control the behavior and not expressing appropriate empathy. So associated with a model, I think that expression of empathy is critically important. Um, I think that focus, you know, getting a little bit more granular, I think that the, this idea of discrepancies that's talked about in MI is so important. So what are the, what are the client's discrepancies around the self-injury? So of, you know, if, you know, like Rachel alluded to, look, if it was just so easy for people to stop self-injuring, we wouldn't be here. They wouldn't need us. We wouldn't even be having this conversation. Um, it's not easy to stop any behavior that people engage in that's become effective to them at that time. And so, you know, figuring out though, what, where are the discrepancies is so important. So everybody who has any kind of, you know, addiction or self-injury or any kind of behavior, you know, they have some discrepancies. So like, for example, um, someone might say to us, you know, I don't want to stop this behavior. This is working for me. And they might see counseling as a threat or challenge to the self-injury, right? So what our challenge is to kind of figure out what are the discrepancies? What are the things that they don't like about the behavior? What are the problems associated with the behavior, right? So for example, um, I hear a lot of people talk about the, the scars, the scars. They don't like the scars. They don't like the visual representations of the self-injury. They might feel shame about them. They might feel embarrassed or self-conscious about them. You know, there, and there's a lot of different things that people might not like about the self-injury, um, kind of maybe the cleanup process, right? Maybe it's time consuming. Maybe they, there's aspects of the experience that they don't like. Maybe they feel out of control around it. They feel embarrassed about it. So in terms of the discrepancies, right, we're trying to figure out what are the, what are the things about the behavior that aren't working, that they're not liking, and really kind of take note of those, right, in the back of our heads, right? Uh, what are those things? Kind of file them away back there because they can come out later and be really helpful 
rolling with the client's resistance is also helpful. And I know we've already touched on this, but not getting into power struggles with clients, not trying to control them, but understanding that the change process is you're by them, you're their guide on the side, but ultimately the change process is about them and you're just there to encourage it and support it, right? And and not try to control it. And interestingly, this, this comes up in a lot of self-injury circles, this idea of should the person stop self-injuring? Like, do we as, as helpers need to focus on them, the cessation, the stopping of the self-injury as a treatment goal? And um, I, you know, I take a very kind of humanistic and my kind of approach, which is I don't want to control clients. I want to roll with their resistance. Um, but some people, actually many people in the self-injury community say, no, look, that needs to be a primary treatment goal. So we could spend a lot of time unpacking that philosophically. It's a really interesting debate and discussion. Um, and then also, you know, another step of MI is is this idea of supporting the client's self-efficacy, right? So trying to empower them to want to learn alternatives to self-injury, want to learn what they can do instead, um, develop the skills to feel empowered, to go down some some new paths. So those are just a few of the ways that that MI can be useful in, in working with this population. Yeah, again, the... The challenge, I think, for most of us is that invitation to recognize that me cutting my arms with a razor blade is serving me some purpose. It's bringing some positive outcome for me. And can you, as a practitioner, be at peace enough, long enough to understand what that is for me before you try to start getting me to change it? that they're like all behaviors, there's a reason that it's there and that I don't need your permission as a practitioner to do this. But really quite significantly, you as a practitioner do need my permission to help me change it. And that, that, that shift in the power where your instinct is to do something about it, but you're doing it with permission, you're doing where you're creating a relationship where you're coming alongside of them and then exploring What's this for you? And then explore and trying to find out with them if there's a if there's a stone in your shoe, what's the stone in your shoe that might make you change direction? That you're not trying to put a stone in a shoe. And very importantly, that, that issue that you raised that, that that we've just recently explored in, in a an episode is the idea of harm reduction. You know, is it is it is it total abstinence? Do they have to stop self injury, or are we going to explore what if part of what we could be doing as we help you explore those decisions is to do it in a way. It's going to minimize additional harms to yourself that, you know, that you're not going to get infection or that you're, you're not going to catch disease or you're not going to spread disease uh, on the others and, uh, and, and how you might go about that. Yeah, I, I love this idea of harm reduction, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. When when Rachel and I do trainings, probably the most common question we get is around this idea of harm reduction. So some people talk about um, how about encouraging clients to use alternatives to self-injury that are less invasive, right? So so what about maybe um, instead of burning yourself with chemicals, what about holding an ice cube in your hand? So you get the sensation of, of discomfort and pain without necessarily as much 
damage, right? Or what about um, snapping yourself with a rubber band whenever you want to self-injure? Um, you know, I, I I don't think that there's anything at all inherently wrong with that. I, I personally, clinically choose not to do those things because I'm more interested in trying to help clients identify their, you know, their feelings and their experiences that are contributing to the behavior and come up with alternatives that they can use day to day out in a school setting or in the real world. So different like mindfulness skills and awareness skills and reframing skills and things. So I don't necessarily focus on this idea of harm reduction clinically, but I definitely don't think that there's anything wrong with it. And um, certainly if clients are trying those things and finding them helpful or they are curious and want to explore those, I would I would absolutely support them in doing some of those things. Yeah, and just to um, piggyback on that a bit, I think um, when we talk about harm reduction, a piece that can be very helpful is minimizing some of the shame and guilt that's attached to acts of self-injury and encouraging the client to engage in things like proper wound care, encouraging the client to access medical care if that's something that is necessary. So letting go of some of that um, that secrecy that oftentimes surrounds self-injury and normalizing that if this is something that you need to do in the moment, what's most important is that you take steps to care for yourself after the fact. Um, And, you know, I want to emphasize it's really important for mental health professionals to be aware of their own scope of competence. So, you know, I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor, a medical doctor. I'm not going to talk to somebody about proper wound care or avoiding avoiding infectious diseases. But what I can do is refer them to, you know, an appropriate medical provider who can help them with that. And, you know, the piece that's really important there is to know your medical providers, because we do know that um, those who self-injure are oftentimes very underserved by the medical profession. Uh, Victoria and I could both speak to individuals that we've personally worked with that have been directly harmed by medical professionals that are saying, you know, things like, oh, well, you've harmed yourself, so I guess I don't need to do any sort of anesthesia while I suture you um, because you must like pain, like really awful things like that that re-victimize those folks that we're working with. So making sure that, you know, you have folks that you can refer your clients to, but individuals that can help normalize that, hey, this is something that happened and now we're going to get some medical treatment and we're going to move forward from there. Related to that, uh, we also like to do safety plans. So not contracts, but safety plans, right? And so just having conversations with clients about their safety, um, you know, like it's been mentioned about uh, not sharing cutting implements, getting proper wound care? Um, What are some of the things that I might want to do to avoid self-injury? If I do self-injure, what do I want to do after? And really not telling clients what the plan should be, but really engaging them in developing a plan using their language, their words, and their hoping skills. Yeah, I was hoping we would get to the whole safety plan versus contract topic. That word contract is uh, still used even though a lot of people have stated quite clearly that that's not the kind of language that that is helpful in these contexts. But uh, I think maybe if we can, before we get to that, Victoria, you, in talking about harm reduction, you mentioned that some people will offer alternatives that are less damaging uh, or ideas for people, you know, whether it's holding the ice cube or using a rubber band uh, as two of the common ones. And that your preference is, is not to go in that direction, but, to go in the direction of uh, encouraging or teaching other types of skills. And so I, I guess I was, I was wondering about that particular part of what you were just saying. Maybe if you could talk a little bit more about your preference for one direction versus the other, and then maybe how am I 
helps get into the conversation about alternatives, whether they are the holding the ice cube type of alternatives or some of those mindfulness skills, you know, because in my experience working with this population, that there is a rush to get to those alternatives and almost like an assumption that, well, you know, all right, we're all on the same page that this needs to stop. So I'm going to help. I'm going to give you ways to stop it. Maybe before that discrepancy work that you were talking about before. So if you could just expand on that part of your, your response from earlier, that'd be great. Yeah, Sebastian, I completely agree with you. And that's why Rachel and I are so passionate about using MI with, with folks who self-injure. Because it, in my experience, it is the case that most providers rush, like you said, to trying to find alternatives to stopping the behavior instead of being curious about the behavior or what it means for the client and what the client wants to create as their story around stopping the behavior or not, right? So I do think that's something I would caution people on not to just rush in a, you know, early on in counseling to developing a safety plan even. That that may not always be necessary. And I think it's really case by case. Look, some people who we've worked with engage in really severe self-injury. So in a first session, it's essential. Um, You know, like I've worked with a client, you know, I had a client who self-injured, had a box cutter in her pants pocket and self-injured in my office. And I didn't even realize it. And all of a sudden there was blood all over. And I was like, wait, what's going on? I was super confused. Um, You know, obviously if someone's engaging in that kind of severe self-injury, you do need to set some boundaries around what's going on. And you do need to engage in some safety planning earlier in the process. But that's an, that's a pretty extreme example, right? Like that's that's not really typical. So I do think it needs to be done um, on a case by case basis. And I do think it's really important to leave as much space as possible early on to just be empathic, right? Going back to MI, right? Being empathic, um, being curious, really listening. One of the things I do, I'm deviating a little bit here, but it's kind of related is um, I think Rachel and I have also written about using narrative therapy with people who self-injure. And you know, narrative therapy is this um, approach that really focuses on the stories that clients tell and the stories that they create and how those stories can be shifted and changed. So some real simple techniques along those lines are um, having the client maybe give the self-injury a name right? So externalizing the self-injury, like I am not self-injury. The self-injury is the self-injury. So having them externalize it and give it a name and then maybe draw, say like a picture of the self-injury, like what, what does it look like to you? And maybe invest a bit of time in constructing an image of what that looks like. And then doing some exercises where you have them write a letter to the self-injury. So dear, whatever the name is, you know, here is Here's what I have to say to you. And then you can have the self-injury influence write a letter back to them. And you can really go back and forth with this in a lot of different creative ways. And you can introduce questions for them along the way, right? Like, you know, you you could have them write a letter about the, um, the ways that they want to fight the influence of the self-injury, right? At some point, that would just be one example. But I, I find that's a really, really powerful way to to get at the client's um, ambivalence, right? And to get at some of the discrepancies and to, you know, am I um, self-empowering them, um, building their self-efficacy? Um, and, and all of that is done with the counselor really being the guide on the side, right? With them creating the story, them identifying the discrepancies, them identifying the solutions. So that's just just one 
way that I kind of marry some of the MI thinking with some of the narrative therapy thinking in a way that I think is really helpful. And that can be done with any any kind of issue that any of our clients have that they have some ambivalence around or they're struggling with. Um, like really think it's so important that we continue to be their partners and be by their side and instill hope, but not not be so directive or active or prescriptive with them that we start to take away their autonomy or they start to feel like we're controlling them in some way or trying to control their story. You know, before I go into sessions, I spend at least three minutes meditating on what my intentions are with a client. And one of the primary intentions that I have is to be to be present, right? To make space for them and to not control them or tell them what to do or dictate or be prescriptive, right? Like I want to really support them in their process and what they need. And I just, I just think that for me, that's such a helpful way of making sure my intention is set and that I don't overstep and try to control. And I find that to be a very, very helpful approach with this population. Yeah. So that's a very powerful insight for us to consider, which is as a practitioner, as a helper, I'm, I'm about to, ask their permission to step into their world. And you're recognizing when I step into their world, their world may look very, very chaotic and very, very disorganized and very, very painful. And what you're doing is you're allowing yourself to become conscious of that in advance of going in so that you've prepared yourself to recognize this this is their world and to keep mindful of yourself while you're there so that you can then do the, the, the beautiful work that you're describing there, which is that, you know, that relational work that the, that the individual has with their hurt or hurting self and that you are there to bear witness and to to offer safety in that development of the relationship that they have with and the thoughts they already have, they may have towards that hurt or hurting self and how they can navigate that relationship to make it one where the conscious self can then begin to negotiate or talk this hurting or hurt self to do it slightly differently to suit that individual's needs and just that that powerful acceptance of the individual and their experiences of themselves brings us back to the piece that you began with which was just that control and the agency over their experience and their own process and that you as the practitioner are trying to create an environment where there are boundaries which offer safety but flexibility and fluidity that allows them to decide which direction they want to go in when you're accompanying them. And it sounds like you're being flexible in that, that you're bringing in that narrative approach, but you're also allowing yourself to stay open to maybe melding or marrying motivational different skills and techniques into those conversations too. Yeah, that's so well stated, right? We want our clients to be safe. We want them to make safe choices and decisions. And we can say that, and that can be helpful at times, but more than anything, we have to show them what that can feel like. We have to create a space where they can actually feel that they're supported and that we believe in them and that we believe in their strength and their resilience and and hope, right? And we spiritually need to meet with them in this place of, of believing they can change, believing that as humans, they're moving forward towards growth, towards being their best selves. And if we, if we don't genuinely feel that and think that before we come into contact with them, they're going to know that. So, so, you know, our head and our spiritual, spirituality has to be in a good place when we come together with them and meet with them in that way. And then, you know, they experience that kind of safety and hope in our presence. And I think that's really 
so essential to using MI with this population and to helping them be their best and move forward. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, you know, I always think for myself that among some of the best tools that I have in my toolbox when I'm, especially when I'm beginning to work with somebody who's engaging in self-injury is the or skills, right? So kind of falling back on those really basic, like counselor one-on-one skills, but using those open-ended questions, um, offering affirmations, reflecting content, summarizing those pieces that seem super basic and seem like, well, anybody can do that. But for somebody that hasn't felt heard or who has had negative interactions with other treatment professionals, having space where they can just talk and have somebody listen and avoid rushing to judgment, avoiding rushing to trying to change behavior, avoid rushing to, you know, that premature focus or labeling their behavior and just allowing them space to own the direction we go in and own what they're talking about can be so powerful and really can help set a a strong foundation for what comes next and some of those other interventions and really cultivating trust that's required for someone to be willing to embrace the idea that perhaps something can be different, perhaps things can change. Um, and, And so I've, you know, oftentimes in my career found myself kind of just falling back on all right, let's use the or skills and let's go from there. Let's set this foundation uh, for our relationship. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I want to explore a bit about how am I, and in particular, the, uh, the change talk aspect or, or emphasis in motivational interviewing, how that might play out and how that might actually sound in session or in conversation with, with people. So you're bringing up the or skills would be relevant there. Yeah, I had mentioned uh, that my interest in the whole safety planning versus contract distinction, and if I can kind of summarize it, both from hearing from the two of you today, and then just in my own understanding of it, that that um, you know much of what you've been talking about today is really honoring another person's autonomy, even as a young person, to not rush to fix, even if it's a you know concerning, maybe even an urgent type of situation, and and having that be a thread that runs through throughout the work and the relationship. Just the idea of a contract has a more of like a coercive or controlling you know feel to it. Contracts are things that you break, and then it could even sort of add to the secrecy that's already embedded in the behavior or the, the process. And it seems like the shift to safety planning is is one that is more consistent with maintaining a relationship. It's a plan that the other person can have maybe feel more ownership of. It can adapt and evolve over time, whereas contracts feel a bit more rigid and fixed. So I, I'm sure there's more to it, but generally speaking, am, am I kind of on this on the right track with that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're nodding. So, yeah. Um, so then as far as the, we'll, we'll get into the change talk part, because I, I think you could argue that exploring the idea of change talk with any behavior when you're talking about how am I relates to working with a certain population, that it's, it's, it's a necessity, right? So I guess what I'd be curious about from your experience is, you know, if, if we think about open questions and reflections as two of the ways that we might respond, at least invite change talk about self-injury into the conversation or, or things you might hear a client say, maybe even you might observe in a client, might it even be language or, or verbal language, it might be something else, but how does change talk show up in these conversations and how might you cultivate and evoke more of it? Yeah, I, I think with self-injury, just just as with all issues, the change talk piece is really, really important. Um, and, you know, in so many ways where 
we're kind of subtly instilling hope of a future in which they're not self-injuring, right? And so we want we want to use our language really strategically to kind of guide them towards some of those things. So, you know, oftentimes, like with any issue, a behavioral issue someone wants to change, there there's a real commitment to that behavior. They're scared of losing that behavior because it serves an important function for them. And it, it feels often in those moments at that time, like it's their friend and they're really scared of losing it. Right. But like I said earlier, you know, there's always there's always uh, discrepancies in terms of problems that the self-injury is causing for them. And, again, you know, it can be different things for different people. I a lot of times I hear about the scars. The scars are things that that people really struggle with and wish that they didn't have or have to contend with, you might use different questions. Like, you know, when you think about the self-injury, what worries you about the self-injury? And people might talk about, look, well, I'm afraid I'm going to cut deeper than I intended. What if I accidentally hurt myself seriously, right? Or I'm afraid of, you know, people will say like, I'm afraid I'm going to get married and I'm going to be walking down the aisle and I'm going to have these, these ugly scars on my body, right? So, so that might be one question. Um, you might say things like, uh, what, what um, difficulties have resulted from the self-injury? What kinds of problems has it created for you? What is it about the self-injury that, that, that worries you or concerns you? What is it about the risk of accidentally harming yourself more seriously than you wanted that worries you, right? So there's a lot of trying to, to get at some of these um, things that are concerning to the client that are motivating it. You might also ask different questions um, like, what would you like to be like in five years around the self-injury? Like, is this something you want to be doing less of? Or is it something that you completely want to cease? What are some of the advantages of reducing the self-injury, right? So going back to maybe thinking about some of the harm reduction issues, how could you reduce it? Um, what would be different in your life if you didn't self-injure? What would, be, what would be different in your life? You might also want to use some change talk in terms of thinking about successes that they've had Right. So when when are times that you've not self-injured and how were you able to do that? And, you know, did you know that you could control that? Um, what kinds of strengths do you have that you might use to start to move towards reducing your self-injury? So these are just some examples of questions you might use with the client to get them to start to think about a future that looks different from, from the present, but yet you're not controlling them or guiding them or suggesting to them what they need to do to change and move forward. Those are things they're coming up with on their own. And to add to that, just briefly, one of the things that some of our clients may be prone to, some of our clients who self-injure may be prone to is sort of all or nothing thinking. And so in that sense, um, as an example, Self-injury is the only thing that works for me. It's the only thing that will ever work. There's nothing else. And so in this situation, um, using like a looking back type question to help elicit change talk around the idea that there are times in your life where you have been unable to self-injure and where you have experienced something difficult. What have you done? So as an example, if we're talking about youth, oftentimes child may be in school and maybe there something really horrible has happened at school that day and they haven't been able to harm themselves, or they haven't had their desire to implement to harm themselves. So maybe they've scratched instead of cutting. And so using that type of question to say there has been one time in your life where you wanted to harm yourself and you haven't, tell me about that. That can also help to elicit some of that change topic and also get them out of that all or nothing thinking that this is the only thing that's worked for me and it's the only thing that will ever work for me as well. 
Yeah, and back to that whole idea of exploring the discrepancy, it makes me think about an episode we had with Mary Velasquez who was talking about the cycle of change and the importance of what's described as the experiential processes of change. That if, if not enough work is done at that end, that when we do the behavioural processes, that relapse becomes much more likely. And what it sounds like you're doing is you're just in those questions you're exploring that is inviting change talk and that is inviting self-affirmation and, and, and being supported by our affirmations as practitioners is really getting people to really understand that what is the emotional arousal, what is the self-evaluation, understand the impact and re-evaluation of the environment for themselves. Because by working those things out now, when they do decide to make the behaviour change, that they have a firm understanding within themselves why this is the right thing for them to do rather than I'm going to keep my mum happy or I'm going to get this social worker off my case, this lovely therapist, I'll do it to keep her happy because she's so nice. Well, and I'm so glad you brought this up because this speaks to another really issue that we've, um, important issue that we've not discussed yet today, which I think we should, which is even if, you know, a therapist can control a client's behavior and get them to stop self-injuring, like even if that happens, there's still some underlying struggle or issue there that needs to be resolved. So perhaps they stop self-injuring, but then maybe they go pick up substances and they start drinking more, right? So, um, you know, it's important that the change be coming from the client, that it's motivated by the client. And I firmly believe, I'm a humanist and I, you know, I firmly believe that when a client makes decisions and they get empowered and they have autonomy and self-efficacy to make decisions to move forward in, in a way that they want to, that that's going to be sticky for them, that it's going to be really effective and that, and that those those skills will be transferable in other ways to kind of help keep themselves growing and moving forward and, and feeling safe. And that's where I think the spirit of MI is such a fantastic fit for working with uh, non-suicidal self-injury because of that emphasis on partnership. As Victoria just mentioned, the reality is as a therapist, I'm not with my client 24 hours a day and they absolutely can self-injure and they don't ever have to tell me about it. But what I hope happens is that we have an open and honest relationship and they feel that if something happens in their life, that they're able to come back to session and share it with me so that we can work through it. And so, you know, to kind of circle back to where we came from with uh, regard to the contract, all those tend to do is shut down conversation. If I, as a client, have signed a piece of paper saying that I'm not going to hurt myself before my next session, and then something happens and I do, I'm either going to cancel that session or I'm going to maybe go back to session and not tell my therapist about what happened because I don't want to feel like I broke a contract. And so I think really embracing that spirit and recognizing that this is a journey that we're going to go on together and that oftentimes it's going to take some time is really important as we navigate helping our clients work through these types of issues. Yeah, wonderful reminders of not just the generalities of how the relationship helps, but really some of the specifics of it and to uh, have that partnership ideal uh, that you're striving for in the relationship, it lends itself to more openness on the part of the client. And, and in terms of the clinician, you know, maybe even expressing appreciation for someone sharing this with you. And certainly if it's the first time that they're sharing it, but maybe especially if there has been some safety planning and it's a few weeks into the work and they come in and they say that they are still struggling with it and they've engaged in the behavior that even then can be an opportunity to express appreciation that might be that much more powerful since it's probably a huge risk for them. Or I might probably be feeling that, that if they're sharing this again, that you're saying, you know what, I really appreciate that you 
brought it up and you felt safe enough to do so. And let's move forward together to figure out where to go from here, how the MI spirit can guide those parts of the conversation can be so valuable. Well, we are getting to a point of closure with our uh, conversation today. There's so much more that I'm sure we could get to, but we're thinking we might transition and and start to uh, hear from the both of you with a question that we ask all our guests, which is, what is something that you have coming up for you in the in the not too distant future, be it professional or or perhaps personal that you're looking forward to or um I can go. I um, have set a goal recently that uh, somebody who works from home and spends way too much time um, in front of their computer doing not much else to walk more. So I am trying to do ten thousand steps a day currently. And then eventually we'll move from that to 15, um, ultimately trying to get to 30,000, which seems like a super lofty goal, but um, definitely looking at my step counter every day and feeling all sorts of guilt and anxiety that I am not moving um, at all, except to go like from my bedroom to my kitchen, to my office, back to my kitchen, back to my bedroom, sometimes making a stop in the living room. Uh, so that is, that's my goal. And hopefully as I go into the new year, we'll be closer to that uh, lofty step goal. So I can imagine that you know how many steps it is between your bedroom and your I living do. room. Yeah, right. I have a to a science. <laughs> Rachel, that's completely motivating me to move my body more. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm, I'm excited. My um, youngest child just went off to college, so I'm officially an empty nester. And I just turned 50. So I'm, I'm really just kind of thinking about the rest of my life and what I want that to look like. And it feels really exciting for the first time to not be caretaking for people. So I'm really excited about that. Something I'm excited about professionally as I I start to round out my career is I really want to get into child advocacy. That's why I went into counseling, but I've been distracted in a lot of different directions. And I'm really excited about this um, idea of childism, childism, which is this idea that children across all societies, across the globe and all communities are really considered second-class citizens and don't have voice, but what we never talk about that. And so it, it's so obvious to me and so relevant across all societies. And so it's just something I really want to, to talk about more and, and um, empower us to all think about is how we can uh, support our young people who don't have voice and are really among the most vulnerable people in our society. So I'm really looking forward to spending the next decade or two um, unpacking some of that and trying to do some advocacy work for our little ones. So quite powerful that, that you, you said at the beginning, I don't want to work. I didn't want to work with kids. And, <laughs> and, and here you are at this point in your journey where you're recognizing, you know what, there's, there's something that, that is so significant about our understanding of these smaller people that, and there's things that we could be doing to support them and that your love of people, your love of helping people, it sounds like you're expanding that circle to include yourself now, which is, you know, oh, I'm 50, my, my youngsters are gone, what do I do now? And there's a degree, it sounds like there's a degree of excitement and, and uncertainty about, you know, where where this opportunity is going to take you. So I wish you every success and joy and, and whatever it is you discover as, a, as an empty nester and um, what can replace it in a way that's fulfilling for you. So one of the other things we ask our guests is if it's okay, undoubtedly there will be people listening to this will be curious to find out more or have questions about things that you've said. If it's okay, if people were to contact you, how would they go about doing that? Oh, yes. I, I love to hear from people and people reach out to me a lot 
And I actually learn so much from the questions and um, really interesting situations that they present. So, so, so folks can feel free to reach out to me. My email address is Victoria, Victoria E as in Elizabeth, just the initial E and my last name, which is Kress, K-R-E-S-S at gmail.com. Yeah. And folks can also feel free to reach out to me. I am terrible on email, so I am not even going to pretend that I'm good about taking care of my inbox, any of them. Uh, but social media is fine. Um, LinkedIn always works well. So Rachel O'Neill on LinkedIn or on threads, O'Neill RM. So folks can reach out to me there as well. Fantastic. And again, just to remind people the way they can stay in touch with us on Twitter or X as it is now, at Change Talking. Uh, for Seb, it's S-G-K-F-R-O-M-N-C. And for me, it's at Glenn Hines. Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And email for questions or ideas or information, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Well, thank you both. Uh, this has been fantastic. I'm sure for people who are unfamiliar with, with this um, type of clinical issue and, and for people who work with it every single day, it's, uh, this was really wonderful to hear your perspective. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having thank a you. voice to this really important conversation that we're so passionate about. Thank you so much.